You are listening to a message from First Assembly of God. We are a church on a mission to restore everyone, everywhere, to a loving and holy God. If today's message inspires you in any way, would you consider sharing it with a friend? This is just one of the many ways that you can be a part of what God is doing here at First Assembly. Clickbait. What has your attention? To what? To whom? Are you paying attention? Not everything that grabs your attention is life-giving. A few weeks ago, my wife and I were going to bed. We just shut off the lights. We're laying there kind of quietly, and all of a sudden, you can hear it. My wife goes, there's a fly in the room. Now, how many know when my wife says there's a fly in the room? The translation is, please get out of bed and destroy the fly. So being married 24 years, I can read between the lines. So I get out of bed, flip the light on, and where does the fly go? Where? The fly goes to the? I've got the fly's attention. Now, when I was younger, I just would have grabbed a hand towel and just waited, you know, and chased the fly around the room, wait for it to land on the light and swing that towel, try to kill. But I'm getting smarter in my old age. I opened the bathroom door to our, our master bath right off our, our bedroom, turned the light on in the bathroom, opened the door wide, walked back in the bedroom and shut off the light. And where does the fly go? Toward the light into the bathroom. Now I've got the fly in the bathroom. I'm not done. Turn the light on in the little closet off the bathroom. Turn the light off in the bathroom, and where does the fly go? Come on, people, to the, into the closet, right? I've got him in there. Now I'm just in this little closet with our clothes. Now the fly can't run. I got him. And for those of you that, that value insects, um, your pastor caught the fly gently in the palm of my hand and walked outside and released him into the cool night air. For those of you that believe, want to believe the truth, man, I killed the sucker right there, man, I got it. Knocked him on the ground and boop, got him into the toilet and went and got a good night's sleep. Not everything that grabs your attention, not every bright light that goes off in your mind or in the roads of your life not every door that says, come inside, come inside, come inside, is a door that leads to life. Two short weeks to talk about this very critical issue, clickbait. What has your attention? In your wallet, not in your wallet, in your back pocket or buried in the cavern- caverns of your purse or maybe in the palm of your hand or on the seat right next to you is a little device with a screen that commands your attention. And that's no accident. Some of the brightest minds, some of the sharpest people, some of the highest paid professionals spend 40, 50, 60 hours a week trying to figure out how to keep your attention. Because when they have your attention, they get their money. And some of the wealthiest corporations on the planet are rich 
because they hold our attention. With our attention, they can lead us to purchase things. With our attention, they can get us to vote a certain way. Your attention is a valuable commodity. Have you ever thought of that phrase, pay attention? You know, usually we say that to a toddler or a fourth grader. Hey, you need to pay attention. Sometimes it's to our 25-year-old when they're driving. Sometimes my wife says that to me when I'm driving. Pay attention. Think about that. Pay attention. When we think of paying, we think cash. We think debit card. We think of financial resource. I will pay out of my financial resources to get something of value. I will exchange my money for your good or your service. Pay attention. There is perhaps no more valuable commodity than your attention. Very limited supply. There will be a day when you have no more attention to give. It's a limited resource, a valuable resource. What are you getting as you pay attention? What exchange rate are you getting? Are you falling prey to clickbait? How many times has our family of five all been together, all in the room, looking at a different screen? Clickbait. Last week, we discovered that Jesus understood clickbait long before Apple did. Long before Facebook, Jesus said this. All through the Gospels, we find it. It's going to be on the screen from the Gospel of Mark. He even said it seven times in a row in the book of Revelation. Does anyone have an ear to hear? Let him hear. In other words, let the person with ears learn to pay attention with them. Because it's quite possible to have ears that really are too distracted to hear, too busy, too concerned with meaningless things. Paying too much attention to something that isn't giving life back. We're taking these two Sundays to briefly look at two portions of Scripture where Jesus said in the book of Revelation to a group of Jesus-loving people, seven churches, we're going to look at two of them, and all seven churches heard the same words. Do you have an ear to hear? Then listen. I believe God has something to speak to you today. I believe God has something to say to First Assembly. The issue isn't, is God speaking? The issue is, are our ears too clogged to hear? Are our minds too cluttered to understand? Are our eyes so distracted that we can't see? clickbait. To what, to whom are you paying attention? Last week it was Revelation chapter 2 where Jesus spoke uh, to the church in Ephesus, probably the largest church in the first century, what is modern day Turkey. And Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, I love your good works. You're really busy doing good things. You're doing a great job for me. You despise the hypocrisy of false teachers who say one thing but live a different way or who say the wrong thing even though they're living the right way. 
He says, you despise hypocrisy in the church, and that's a good thing. But he says, but there's this one problem. There's this one issue, and if you're too distracted by clickbait, you will miss it. And what was their problem? You have abandoned your, your first love. He says, you're doing all these good things, but you've abandoned. It's the same word we use for forgiveness. You, you've taken it out of you and set it aside. You have forgotten it. You've laid it up aside. You've abandoned it. It's like you're doing all of these good things. You've gone on in your journey with Jesus, but somewhere back in the past, you've neglected your first love, the most important love, the priority love, the initial love, my love for Jesus. And you're doing all of these good things, but you have forgotten how to love me. And so Jesus tells them three things. You need to remember what it was like. Do you remember what it was like to first fall in love with God? To say that simple prayer, perhaps, to hit the altar for the very first time and to realize I walked into this room not knowing who God was or feeling guilty because I was so far from Him. And when I stood up, when I finished that moment of prayer, something changed. And now I'm different. Remember that time. So he says, remember it and keep on remembering. Then he says two other things. So you repent, you turn back to the first love and you head back to that moment. Recapture that. And then he says, redo. Get busy doing all the good stuff, but don't do it without loving me to the utmost. Remember that from two weeks ago. Today, let's look at a different church. This is the sixth church out of the seven. And it's a church that asks us if we're paying attention to the doors. Not Jim Morrison, he's dead and gone, the Lizard King still buried in Paris. Not the doors, but the doors in your life. You have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of doors to choose from every day. Who's in charge of what doors you go through? Who's in charge of opening opportunities and closing opportunities? Who has the keys to the doors in your life. Man, don't we love, don't we all love the big opportunities, the big open doors, when that big promotion opens up for us, the big opportunity opens wide. How many love open doors? Okay, three of us. The rest of you, you like, you like getting slammed in the face. How many like open doors? I mean, I, give me the open door, God, right? I remember August 13th. 1994, I stood in this position on the stage. Two pastors were here, a bunch of people who liked me right over here, and right through the main doors, I could see my wife, my future wife, dressed in her beautiful wedding gown. And man, when those doors opened, ooh la la, my knees were shaking. I was sweating. I could hardly speak. Yes, I love the open door. Thank God she didn't close it right after that, right? When doors open, we rejoice. Sometimes doors close, don't they? And those are usually painful. Sometimes doors just shut right in our face. The third time in my childhood that I got stitches or I needed stitches was a closed door. Chasing my cousin through the house, she slammed the door behind her and the doorknob went right in my forehead. That's a blessing of being of smaller stature. Doorknobs hit me in the head. Thankfully, I've gotten taller. They hit me in the chin now, so I can, it's a little bit better. 
We don't like closed doors. When a door shuts, it's frustration, it's pain. And we go through life thinking these are random acts, random opportunities, open doors, closed doors. But does someone ultimately have the authority over the doors in your life? Are you paying attention to the doors you're walking through? How do you know, is this door an opportunity or am I like a fly being drawn to the light soon to be in Pastor Joel's bath towel? We need to think. We need to pay attention to the doors in our life. Here's what Jesus says. This is in Revelation chapter 3. He writes this, to the angel, that's most likely the, the lead pastor, the lead bishop over the church. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One and the True One, that's Jesus, holy, totally pure, totally other, completely separate from the tangled mess of the earth. The words of the Holy One, the True One who is faithful and trustworthy. The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the, say that three-letter word, who has the, say aloud, who has the, he has the key of David who opens and no one can shut it and who shuts and no one can open. What's Jesus referring to? He says, I'm the one with the key of David. Jesus is speaking in reference to a prophecy that was given 800 years earlier in the book of Isaiah. What does it mean to have the key of David. You find that in Isaiah chapter 22. It's a lengthy story. We're just going to look at a couple of verses, and here's what we find. This is what the Lord, the Lord of heaven's armies, said to me. Again, this is 800 years earlier, and Isaiah is speaking the words of God. This is what the Lord, the Lord of heaven's army, said to me, Isaiah is saying, and here's the quote. This is what God is speaking. Confront somebody. How many know it's not good when God has to confront? Confront Shebna, the palace administrator, and give him this message. So here's a man, Shebna, he's the palace administrator. He is the point official that's the administrator of the palace, the king of Israel. He is the one who has authority to let people come in and see the king or be denied the right to see the king. Here's what the Lord says to him, verse 16. Who do you think you are? How many know that's not good words to hear from God? When I stand before God at the end, I hope He doesn't look at me and say, now who do you think you were? Who do you think you are? What are you doing here in this palace, building a tomb for yourself? Verse 17, the Lord is about to hurl you away, mighty man. He's going to grab you like a flat pastor and crumple you up like a ball and toss you away into a distant, barren land. How many know that's not good words to hear from God? This man had keys. He had authority, and he had power in God's kingdom. I know reading these words, you may think, I can't imagine a loving, holy, merciful God talking that way to someone. God being sarcastic, who do you think you are, mighty man? But yeah, God speaks directly and harshly 
to people in authority in God's kingdom who abuse that authority. When people have keys in the kingdom of heaven and they abuse that power, look out. So God says, excuse me, almighty man, I'm tossing you away. Verse 20, I will call a new servant, Eliakim, to replace you. Verse 22, go to verse 22. I will give him what? The, I'll give him the, the key to the house of David. What does that mean? I'm going to give him the keys of the palace to let people in and out and have access to the royal court. When he opens doors, no one's going to be able to close them. And when he closes doors, no one will be able to open them. So the question is, why did Jesus say, I am the holy one, I'm the true one, and I have the keys to the house of David? Jesus is saying there's one person in all the universe that's been given the authority to open and close doors in the kingdom of God. One person that gives you access to God. One person who says, come in. And one, one person who has the authority to say, you can't. And that's Jesus, who's been exalted to the highest place in authority beside the throne of creator God with that kind of authority and power. And so Jesus says this, I know your works, he's saying to the church. I know what you're doing. And behold, I've set before you an open door. Jesus, the key maker, has opened a door for this church, for these people. He says, no one can shut this door. I know that you have little power. I know you don't have a lot of confidence. I know you don't feel strong. I know you feel weak and incapable. But man, you've been obedient. You've kept my word. Would you rather have power or would you rather have obedience? Would you rather have the world's authority or would you rather have the backing of a righteous and holy life? And Jesus is telling this church, I've opened a door. I've unlocked what no one can shut. And I know you're a little bit nervous to walk through it. I know you're a little bit hesitant but you've been obedient. I'm going to bless you and empower you to go through that door. Verse 10, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial. The open door for them is protection from persecution that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell in the earth. Verse 11, Jesus said, I'm coming back soon, so hold fast to what you have so no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he'll never go out from it. Verse 12, and I will write my, the name of my God on him. Isn't it cool to think that God's put his name on you? Like, you're my son. You're my daughter. Every, every parent my age and younger knows what this picture is all about, right? When, 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 when Buzz says, I'm Andy's. His name is on me. That's what God is saying. I've scribbled in permanent Sharpie ink. You're mine. And no one can take you from me. I'll write my name on him and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from God, my own new name, verse 13. Let the person, let the church, let anyone who has ears to hear what God is speaking, hear it. Hear it. The problem isn't that God is silent. The problem is we're not paying attention. When you are so consumed by the clickbaits of life 
you miss the open doors God has for you. Let me talk just briefly. How do you know if a door is God? How many know not every door is the right door? You can go through life with lots of doors inviting you in, and not every one of them is from God. I mean, how many have ever walked into the wrong room? Right? You've been, you haven't been paying attention. You've been in conversation, and you've walked into the wrong room. Raise your hand. Right? We, we teach, Pastor Dave teaches a couple classes. I teach a couple classes at ISOM, Illinois School of Ministry. There's one student named Danny who walked into the wrong class. He hadn't studied, he hadn't prepared, and he didn't even realize it. Sat through the whole class, took the test, and passed. And now he's just like, well, I guess I don't have to take that class. He nailed it in one weekend. Incredible. How many have ever walked into the wrong bathroom? Right? Raise your hand high if you, if you proudly or maybe ashamedly walked. Come on, lift your hand up. Say, yep, I've walked into the wrong bathroom. Now, turn to someone with their hand up and say, I want to hear that story. Uh, yeah. Not on the platform, but, you know, in the lobby. Not every door, not every door that you walk through is God's. Sometimes it's easy to tell evil from truth or unholy from holy. Sometimes it's clear, but often it's not. Sometimes clickbait has distracted you where you're just walking through life with your head down and your eyes are not up, you don't know where you're going, and you look around and you've walked into the wrong room. It may have looked right on the surface. It may have felt right at the beginning. The Bible says there's a way that seems right to people, but in the end it leads to death. You're like the fly in Joel's closet. The Bible says there is pleasure of sin for a season. And maybe you've lived that pleasure. Maybe you've walked in and you're looking around going, I'm in the wrong room. How do you know when you're walking through life that you may be facing a door that's wide open, but Jesus isn't the one that unlocked it? Very quickly, and then I'll get to my, the big picture, but very quickly. Number one, does it line up with Scripture? Here's how to know what Scriptures say about it. And I know it's a huge book. I mean, it's massive, like hundreds and hundreds, a thousand plus pages. You're like, how can I figure out God's will? It's so big. Well, just start. If you're a new believer, start in the New Testament, read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and just figure out what Jesus is like. If you've been following Jesus longer, devote yourself to Romans or some of the great epistles, Ephesians, and start learning what the Bible says. Surround yourself with people who understand it better than you and start learning. Because although it is so massive, and you can download the version app, it's free, you can put it on your phone or your iPad, and you can read and you think, man, I'm never going to learn anything. You're wrong. Just start, and it'll come alive in your heart. It is so huge that sometimes people are intimidated. Don't be. God wrote that for you. Dive into it. It's so practical. I know it's so immense, but it is so practical. This last week, I was taking my daughter to, uh, to school. It had to be on Tuesday morning because it was the morning after the Bears' victory. Woohoo! So I'm listening to sports radio, and, and, and they were interviewing someone, someone, you know, uh, some 
national um, journalist was, was on the phone. They were interviewing, and, and the local uh, host from 670 to the score, I still listen to all the Chicago stations, said, man, that was a blank of a game. You know, he swore. And my daughter, my 13-year-old, I'm taking her to school. She said, Dad, why do people swear so much? How do we know that swearing is wrong? How do you know which words are okay and which aren't? How many know that's a great question? What she's asking is, what comes out of my mouth? Which door is it? Is this a good door or a bad door? The Word of God helps us. So we went through it. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. What does that mean, Lily? We talked about how, we, how this world cheapens the name of Jesus to a common swear word and how we want to keep that reverent. We don't talk about God in a cheap way. We just don't say OMG because the G on the end of that is the creator of the universe who died for me. So we don't casually use God we reverence that word. Then we talked about the New Testament. What does the New Testament talk about words? How do you know if they're right or wrong? And remember the Ephesians, don't let corrupt talk or dirty things come out of your mouth. So is it a word that's about a topic that's dirty? Maybe it was supposed to be pure, but in the way you're using it, it's a dirty concept. It's a dirty part of the anatomy. It's something gross and inferior then that's not how a Christian should talk because we elevate language. Whenever Jesus comes into your life, he elevates it. We don't cheapen it. We don't use cheap words instead of thinking through good adjectives. Boy, that was a blank in this. Well, maybe we can learn better language than what's cheap and gross. Am I making sense? How do you do that? Scripture. Then quickly, some other things. Well, what if Scripture doesn't make it clear? Three tests. Is it wise? Is it beneficial? Is it holy? You're walking through a door. You stop and go, I don't know if this is God. Check Scripture. I'm still not sure. Scripture doesn't make it clear. Well, is it wise? Find someone older than you, more water under their bridge, who can look at you and say, son, daughter, friend, if you make that choice in 20 years, here's the result. You can do it if you want. It's not evil. It's not wrong. But it's not wise. A wise door is from Jesus. Is it beneficial? How many times have people said, well, I'm not hurting anybody else. It doesn't hurt my kids. It doesn't hurt my spouse. It's my own life. I can do what I want. It doesn't hurt anybody. That's the wrong question. The question is, does it hurt anybody? The right question is, is it beneficial? God hasn't called you to not hurt people. God's called you to love people, encourage them build them up. Does it build up your kids? Does it encourage your spouse? Then it's probably Jesus' door. Is it wise? Is it beneficial? And finally, is it holy? Not is it legal or illegal. It really doesn't matter what the government declares is, you know, legal, illegal. What does God say? Is it holy? Does it mirror God's character and nature? Will it make you more like God at the end of the day or less? What does Scripture say? Is it beneficial? Is it wise? Is it holy? If yes, Jesus has opened that door. Now, let me talk about what I believe God is speaking to you and to me about doors in our last few minutes. Jesus tells this church in Philadelphia, 
Are you listening to me? Do you have an ear to hear what I'm saying? Then hear what I'm saying, because I have the keys to the house of David, and I've opened a door for you. So let me talk about some doors. I believe God's open for you and for us, and we need to pay, pay, pay attention. Number one, Jesus has the keys, and he's opened the door to a right relationship with God. Whether you believe it or not, there's a barrier between you and God. There's a barrier between you and your creator. And Jesus is the one who opens the gate to let you in. Jesus said this in John chapter 10. He says, I am the door. Other translations, NIV, I believe, says, I am the gate. I am the gateway. I'm the one who opens it up and allows the sheep to go into pasture. And now I am the doorway to God, Jesus would later say, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to God the Father except by me. He's the gate. If you want right relationship with God, you go through Jesus. And some people refuse. They say, not a chance. How can he claim that? That's arrogance. That's proud. How can he say he's the only way? And they insist on finding another. When Jesus gave his life, the innocent one died for all of us guilty ones to open the door, to open the gate. But we insist on trying to climb it our own way. We're going to work harder. We're going to work smarter. I'm just going to, you know, try to do better next time. I hope when I meet the big man up in the sky, all my positives outweigh my negatives. And I'm just going to climb that gate myself. Not a good idea. I remember as a like a 12, 13-year-old. It was in the dead of winter at my home in Iowa. I was coming up to this gate, this big fence row. On the other side, about 100 yards across that fence was my best friend's house, Doug Wolnhouse. And my brother and I, Daniel and I, were going to go over to the Wolnhouse family and go hang out. And there was this beautiful snowbank that just built up to the edge of the gate. And I tell my brother, I'm going to jump the gate myself. You know, I'm not going to take time to open the gate. I'm going to run and jump. And the snow was packed down really tight. I had my big, fat moon boots on. Remember the moon boots, those of you in your 40s, right? Those big, ugly things look like astronaut boots. I said, Watch this. you know, I'm testing the snowbank. I think it can hold me. So I, I back up. You know, I'm going to make a run for it. And how many know when you make that leap, you push off your back foot? And guess what happened? Foot sinks in the snow. I hit the gate right about here, flip over the top, come falling down the other side, and there's the bailing wire you use to tie the gate shut, scraped right across my whole face. So thankful it didn't tear out an eye because it went right across my eyelid. A bloody mess. And that's what happens. A bloody mess. Jesus died just to open the gate. Every single human being, Jesus died so they could have access to God. What door is Jesus opening for your life? Number one door and the most important door is you now have access to God. I don't come before God saying, I think I'm good enough for you to listen to me. I come to God humbly saying, thank you for loving me so much that Jesus would die for me. Cleanse me of my sin and make me right with you. Boom. And it can happen that fast. In fact, some of you need to have that gate open for you and walk right through it this morning. Here's what I want you to do. 
You may be here right now, and as you're listening to me, you're thinking, I, I've never crossed through that gate. I've never entered that door. I've never decided just to let Jesus guide me back to God. I've been living my life to climb my own, to fence my way. I'm going to live the way I want to live. And that's, that's going to lead to a bloody mess. Do you need to follow Jesus today? Do you need to cross through that door? Here's what I want you to do. There's this card right in front of you that says connect and belong. And on the back is a box. It's the middle box. It says, I've chosen today to follow Jesus. And if that's your decision, I want you to mark that. We're going to pray in like 10 seconds. And at the end of service, I want you to take that card, go back to Connecting Point, and let us help you get established in the growth track. But let's pray together. Can we across this whole room? In fact, some of you are going to pray this, and this is you crossing over the door. Say, Dear God, come on, good and loud, everybody. Dear God, I recognize there's a big barrier between me and you. My sin prevents me from the right relationship with you. But Jesus died to open that gate. Jesus died. So I could go through that door. I ask you, Jesus, to forgive my sin and give me a right relationship with my Creator God. Amen. And if you prayed that, we'd love to see you at Connecting Point. Let me over the next about five minutes bring this to the last few doors. That's one door Jesus has opened for everybody. Let me hit a couple more. A door to friendship. Jesus didn't design you to follow him alone. Life is better together. God can give us divine friendships, and it doesn't happen on accident. Next week, we'll be kicking off our Friends series. It'll start next Sunday and go through the month of October. You'll have a handout listing life groups, a bunch of events, and a few hangouts. And we're asking you to pick two, two things, one group, one hangout, two hangouts, one event and a hangout. Pick two. Why? Why pick two things? Because I want you to find a friend. Jesus has given us the opportunity to have divinely appointed friends. Through whatever season of life you're in, you need a godly friendship to help you, to stand with you. So that's a door I think God's opening for us. Number three, God's opening um, the door of invitation. As we go to our friend series... I want you that have been praying for your lost list. We handed these out in April. We did it again in the summer. Some of you have been praying for your list of three, four, five people for a good portion of the year, six months now. Now is a time to start praying about an open door of invitation. Jesus was constantly inviting people. Do you want to come? Are you thirsty? Come. Do you want to follow me? I will make you a fisherman. Jesus is an inviter. And if you feel that God is opening a door to invite people, invite them to church, invite them to your life group, invite them to the Men's Caleb's 100 event, if you feel, I need to invite, then we want to give you invite cards. Our ushers are coming to give you these bundles of five. We've got brand new invite cards for the friendship series, for our friend series. We've got bundles of five for you to give away. And if you say, you know what, I know I've got people I need to invite. I just want you to lift a hand. Get their attention quickly, and they're going to give you a bundle 
of five invite cards for you to hand out through our friend series. Pray over them, ask God to open the door of invitation, and then walk through that door. Lastly, those of us that are paying attention, one final door, and that's a door of ministry opportunity. I believe God has an open door for us. As I've talked to a few families probably a few months ago, I've been talking to the deacons for a good six months perhaps. We've talked about it as a staff. I'm feeling this, this kind of wave of unity about what God wants us to do. And I feel this sense of God's opening a door of opportunity for us and we need to pay attention. How many are paying attention? Okay, I've got about a third of us. How many are paying attention? Give me three more minutes, and I just kind of lied. Five-ish. I believe God has set before us an open door to impact the next generation with a new season of investment and ministry. The next generation matters. I drove in today, saw all the harvest fields, all the cornfields coming down. It looked a lot like this this morning. How many have recognized it's harvest time? You feel it in the air. You can, those of us with hay fever, a little bit of asthma, you feel it in the night air, you know, runny nose in the morning. Oh, it's harvest time. The fields are full of the harvest and the people are busy. When a farmer knows it's harvest time, it's all hands on deck. It's everybody. Call grandpa, call the uncle, call the retired guy, get my five-year-old kid driving a tractor. Everybody needs to be helping. 18-hour days because the, huge, the task is so big, the time is so limited, you've got to work and work and work because it's harvest time. I think God is doing some harvesting in the next generation. The harvest is huge in scope. It's growing. Our kids' ministry is larger this year than last year, even though we're down one staff member and we're looking to hire that staff pastor to add to our team. We're down in staff. We're frankly down in people ministering to our kids, but we have more kids coming. Our student ministry, last Sunday we had, I mean last Wednesday we had 94, 94 middle school and high school students. I think that's the high point of my tenure here, and I expect it to continue growing. God is opening doors. Our young adult ministry, which started at zero five years ago, grew to five, six, eight, and now it is consistently more than 20, even with our church's college students scattered throughout the country. God is opening a door for us, and we need to pay. Okay, we need to pay. Celebrate Recovery has been praying for years to launch what is called the Landing what is the landing? It is celebrate recovery for teenagers. And all of a sudden, we've been praying about this for a long time. The Kemps and their leadership team, since I arrived, more, more than four years, they've been saying, God, someday we need to start this, but we don't have the people, don't know how. Well, God's opened the doors. We have the team forming. We've got the curriculum ready. This January, we're launching Celebrate Recovery for teens that are struggling with addictions and hurts and habits and hang-ups. Our students in this community need it. God is opening new doors. So listen. 
the need, the harvest is huge in scope. Blooming to normal is the place you move to to raise your kids. Children's ministry, youth ministry, young adult ministry matters to God in this community. Number two, it's not just huge in scope, it's huge in significance. How many know the days of Wally and Beave and the Cleaver family? I mean, that walked out of the room a couple generations ago, right? What I went through, the stresses, the thoughts that I went through with a, a pretty typical nuclear middle-class household, going to church every day, the stresses I had are minuscule compared to what students have today. We are now beginning our third generation of post-Christian America. And now we've got grandparents who don't know Jesus, who have raised parents who don't know Jesus, who are raising children who don't know Jesus. And when they come to our youth ministry, they don't know. We can say, you need to talk to God. Who's God? You need to pray. How do I pray? It's not only huge in scope, right? The fields are huge, but the fields are so significant, and the burden is so great. I have here, these are questions that our elementary students, we wrote them down this last week, questions that our elementary students were asking in their group. Are schools in heaven? That's kind of funny. I hope so. We get all A's, I hope. In all seriousness, is anyone sad in heaven? Will my mom get her immigrant papers? Think about that. You're an elementary age kid. You don't know if mom and dad are going to be there. And I, I, it doesn't matter to me where you stand politically. That's not the issue. That's, that, that's not the issue. Check that at the door. What matters is we have children and families here that need to bring their needs to Jesus and need to know the love of, a, of an adult male small group leader an adult female small group leader that will listen to their needs, listen to their questions, and invest in them. This is not, hey, we need five more people in our nursery or we're going to bring all the babies in here. This is not a threat. This is not a plea. This is a sense, this is your pastor saying, I think God is opening doors of ministry, growth, that we need to pay attention to. And I believe the words that Jesus said are very relevant. When the harvest is really great, and you sense the laborers are too few, you pray. You, pray. you don't say, here's the sign-up list, and we need 10 people in the nursery to do child care. I'm not asking for child care. I'm asking for you to say, God, have you opened a door of ministry for me to the next generation? From diapers to the university and everything in between, the need is huge. The need is significant. And I think God is entering us or moving us into a season of open doors. I believe we're investing in it in resource. We're investing in it in staff. You'll be seeing some investment in facility over the next year, year and a half. I believe this is the open door for us, and we need to invest in it. And we can hire the right pastor, do the right things in our building, but unless God calls people into that ministry door, it won't get done. We hope that you got a lot out of today's message and that you'll share it with a friend. To stay connected with what's happening here at First Assembly, be sure to go to the App Store and type in 1AGBN to download the app. Remember, God's created you for a great purpose. Now go and live it out today.